Night Books presents The Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen. Episode 1 World of Glass June 9, 1944 A week prior, Private First Class Hector Milton had never killed a man. Today, he had killed 16. He didn't know how many people he had killed the previous day. He and his partner, Private Rich Thompson, helped take Montberg where the Germans had made a ferocious effort to hold back the American intervention in the Second World War. Rich was Hector's sixth partner. Hector had first arrived on Omaha Beach during the second wave. He knew somewhere someone was planning all of this, but from his eyes, Omaha was the biggest disaster he had ever witnessed. Montberg wasn't any better. Most of the town had been reduced to rubble by the time he met up with Rich from the 4th Infantry Division. Rich was what people would later call a comic book nerd. He had the last two editions of Detective Comics, number 85 and number 86, folded in different pockets of his uniform. When the two hadn't been trudging through the countryside of Normandy or shooting back at Germans in the trees, he unrolled the comics and flicked through them in order to escape from the daily nightmare of 20th century warfare. He was from Nebraska and knew everything about guns and bullets that there was to know. He had bright red hair that curled from under his helmet and above his blue eyes. Sergeant said to check these last few houses and then head back to camp for the night, Rich said as the two walked down the quiet dirt road between rows of houses that had survived much of the grenade and shrapnel explosions during the last 36 hours of fighting. They had cleared most of the German forces from the city for the day, although everyone anticipated a counterattack in the early hours of the following morning. The first three houses were empty, and they expected the same from the last two. The second-to-last house they were to enter was in the best shape of all the houses on the block. Hector and Rich entered and rounded the interior. All of the important possessions had been taken, while there were some chairs and tables remaining in the dining room. Got a basement down here, Rich called from down the hall. Hector finished checking all the rooms and met Rich in front of the basement door. I went down first in the last two. Your turn to risk your neck, buddy, he said to Hector. Hector nodded, too exhausted from the day to say anything cocky pertaining to rank, and pulled the basement door open. The steps descended into what looked like a narrow corridor. Both men pointed their flashlight beams down into the darkness. Hector moved down the creaky wooden steps, aiming his beam below to see if anyone was hiding beneath the rafters of the stairs. He saw nothing moving and no one hiding in the dark. Rich squeaked down the steps and followed at Hector's back as they made their way down the basement hallway. A strange wind blew through the corridor. They both swore as the wooden basement door slammed closed behind them. They hurried back up the steps. Rich pounded on the door, but it wouldn't open. Someone had locked it. Damn it! Rich tried to kick the door, but couldn't get enough motion on the wooden steps to keep from pushing himself back into Hector. Come on, said Hector. There's a breeze. There might be an opening up to the street down below. Uh, I, stammered Rich. I don't like being corralled. Me either, but we're easy targets down here, Hector said. His adrenaline had been keeping him moving for the last two days. His exhaustion had begun to give him the shakes. He returned to the basement floor where they continued down the corridor, 
Rich with his light over Hector's back as Hector kept his M1 Garand rifle trained on every corner of the tomb-like rectangular path ahead. They saw no one, but a warm sensation passed over Hector and then Rich. What was that? Rich asked. Hector turned to Rich, curious how he had felt the same feeling he had felt at the same time. You felt it? Yeah, like someone turned on the heat just now. Yeah, that's exactly it, said Hector. The air felt more humid and thick than it had before. They moved forward, seeing the corridor become a room up ahead. They were indoors, but the two stopped just through the threshold as they entered what was unmistakably a dark and dank forest. The trees climbed around them as they had not before. There was nothing but silence save for the night bugs yammering away in the trees. You hear that? Rich asked. I don't hear anything, Hector said. Exactly. He peered through the trees, trying to see anything ahead, but it was too dark. This is the quietest it's been since we arrived in France. I don't hear anyone barking orders in the distance or the occasional machine gun fire. It's weird, Hector. Sure is. What do you think we should do? Hector scratched the back of his head under his helmet. I have no idea. Rich stepped forward and moved around one of the big trees in front of them. Can't go back? No idea how to go forward? I'm stumped. These trees weren't here up top. It doesn't even physically make sense. He pointed through the trees to the starry sky above. It had been cloudy on the street just ten minutes earlier. None of it made any kind of sense. How could they be outside, but not see the rest of the village where they had just been a few minutes ago? The two heard something in the trees nearby. Both pointed their guns at it and moved back. Hey, U.S. Army, who goes there? Hector called into the darkness. A moment of silence before someone charged out of the brush, a ragged shadow of a creature, and tackled Hector. His rifle went sprawling out of his hand as his back hit the dirt. A second figure took down Rich. Hector got a good view of his attacker's face and saw that it was a lanky man with wild facial hair who looked like he had lived in the brush all of his life. The wild man instinctively grabbed a stone and lifted it in the air over his head, meaning to crush Hector's skull. Hector spun and shoved the man with all of his strength. He didn't weigh very much, so he went flying off Hector. Rich punched his attacker in the face, but two more people emerged from the shadows and dragged him into the trees, his cries filling the air before they dissipated into the distance. The wild creature grabbed Hector's gun and lifted it over his head triumphantly. Hector panicked as he realized they were outnumbered. He didn't know why he did what he did, but he scrambled to his feet and ran back to the threshold from whence they came. He saw the doorway in the middle of a cobblestone wall that was covered with ivy and plants. Hector entered the corridor and ran all the way down until he hit the steps, climbed all the way to the top, and slammed through the door with all of his weight. It wasn't locked now and flew open to a soft glass hallway. He slammed the door behind him and sank to his bottom, feeling tears in his eyes for having left Rich behind. His hands shook before turning to fists. He had just left his partner to die. How could he be so cowardly? Hey, who's down there? Someone called. Hector grabbed his thirty-eight sidearm revolver and pointed it down the hall as a man entered his view. He was an older gentleman wearing a nice white tunic of sorts. It didn't align with anything Hector knew as modern attire in anywhere he had been in the world. The man was unarmed, so Hector lowered his weapon. Private First Class Hector Milton of the 2nd Infantry Division of the United States Army, Hector said, climbing to his feet. You speak English, so I'm assuming you're on our side, he said, warily. Side? the man asked. 
What on earth are you talking about? How did you get in here? He looked around, searching for signs of breaking and entering. My partner and I were searching this house for German forces when we went into your basement and somehow ended up outside. We were attacked. I came back up, and here you are. Where were you earlier? Hector asked. It doesn't matter. I need to make contact with my command post immediately. The man looked Hector up and down. My wife and two children have been here all day. We would have heard you enter if you were here before. I need to ask you to leave before I call the police. I'd very much like to speak to the police if you can point me in the right direction, Hector nodded. The man beckoned for Hector to follow. Hector followed him through the house that was completely different than the one he and Rich had walked through previously. The walls were made of glass, and there were strange appliances everywhere. When they walked through the living room, the entire wall was a glass screen, like one of the televisions that were starting to appear in the US, but so much clearer and more refined. A black-haired boy and girl sat on the floor asleep as their mother sat on the couch, looking at Hector with the same curiosity that her husband had displayed. If Hector had thought something was wrong when he saw the interior of the house, he definitely knew things weren't right when he found himself outside the house on what had previously been the streets of Montburg. All of the buildings looked the same, but there was so much light everywhere it was a miracle they could see the stars overhead. The mandatory blackout was definitely not in effect as it had been before. Futuristic white and gray cars lined the streets. They all looked extremely strange compared to the cars from back home, or the jeeps they were driving around the Normandy countryside. Police station is just up the road and to the left along Yam Road over there, the man pointed down the street. Don't come back here. I'll try not to, Hector said and looked over to see that the man's glass front door had slid shut. The door looked solid white, so that it just looked like a wall. Hector, having no place else to go, walked through the placid streets of what was a massive neighborhood within a huge city. He passed large signs that were like the walls of the man's house from before. Glass. Some had words and advertisements scrolling across them in high definition. He had never seen such fluid technology. The advertisements and colors seemed to be connected to the entirety of the glass network. The whole street was the same milky white glass that covered the walls and buildings. Everything smelled... sterile. The police station was not very large by comparison to the stations he had known back home. It was a white boxy building with a clear window showing a man at his desk reading the glass surface. The front door opened automatically as Hector approached. As soon as he entered the foyer, the doors ahead and behind him closed and sealed. The whole square room glowed a red hue. The wall was clear next to him so that he could see the concerned face of the officer sitting at the desk. A voiceover clicked, and the officer's voice filled the space. Are you wearing a belt? Uh, yeah, Hector answered. Is that an old school revolver? The officer squinted at him. Hector glanced at the empty revolver in his front holster. Yeah. Okay, I need you to put everything metal that you're wearing into the bin in front of you, he said. A bin popped out from under the glass window and waited for his deposit. I'm not authorized to disarm under any circumstances unless notified otherwise by my commanding officer, Hector stated. Don't be so serious. Just put all that old junk in the bin for five minutes so that we can keep track of your inventory. There hasn't been a murder here in over 600 years, so I think you can go five minutes without it. The officer glared at him. Hector glared back, but tossed his pack in the bin, along with his revolver, belt, M3 knife, brass knuckles, lighter canteen, and helmet. 
The light remained red. I think you might just take everything off. We have clothes for visitors. Hector shook his head and took off his shirt and pants and boots and dropped them in the bin. The light remained red. He took off his dog tags and put them in as well. The red light turned to white. The bin re-entered the wall and the officer disappeared from view. A few minutes later, the door opened and the officer greeted him with a handshake. His clothes looked similar to the other man's clothing. A tunic, pants, and boots, but there was an insignia emblem on his collar that Hector didn't recognize. Hector James Milton, he said, reading the dog tags in his hand. Is this some kind of joke? I'm not sure what you're talking about, said Hector. Where did you get all this old stuff? He waved at the bin nearby. It was given to me in service to the U.S. Army. My partner and I are part of an international war effort that's trying to liberate Europe from the hands of the evil dictator Adolf Hitler. That makes no sense to me, the officer said, at a loss for words. Which part? Hector asked. All of it. You said old stuff in reference to my gear, but that's the most modern equipment our military can provide. How can you call it old? This equipment dates back to over 10,000 years ago, he laughed. We don't have guns, ammunition rounds, and flashlights like this. Not since the technological progression era began has this stuff even been around. It's actually worth a lot of money to the natural history museums around the world. All of this stuff. Natural history? Yeah, like stuff from the earliest parts of history, the officer said. He seemed to consider something for a long time while looking at the dog tags again. Look, my grandfather is a historian. He'd love to see all this stuff, but I'll have to confiscate it and take it all with us if you'd like to speak with him. The, uh, revolver is actually highly illegal for you to be carrying around in the open. Do I have a choice? Hector scoffed. Well, you don't have to visit my grandfather, but I can't give you the weapons back. I can help you get paid for finding and bringing them to the Natural History Museum of England if you'd like. I know this seems difficult to understand, and I can tell that it is, but I think it would be best if you talk to my grandfather. Fine, take me to him if you think he can help. Good, give me one second. He pressed a button on the side of the bin. Hector stepped back as the bin transformed into a solid glass box that quickly disappeared from sight. Fear iced through Hector's insides. What happened to it? The officer laughed. You're a real trip. It's still there. You just can't see it. It's going to float after us to my grandfather's house with an advanced AI that connects to the glass network. It's sort of like a puppy that follows you around. That's fascinating. Hector stared in awe at the place where the box had just been. It was absolutely not there anymore, visually. Name's Gregory Finn. The man held out his hand to Hector. Hector shook his hand. Hector Milton. Gregory laughed. Sure you are. Change into this so you're not standing around in your underwear, Hector. He smiled and pressed a button by the door. Fresna, you're needed on the pooper. Affirmative. One trooper to the pooper. A woman drawled over the speaker. Hector got dressed in a comfortable white tunic and pants and put on a pair of black boots that fit him like a glove. He followed Gregory out to the car and entered the passenger seat. There was no steering wheel. The interior of the car was made of glass similar to the box and the walls of everything that this place seemed to be made of. Hey, babe, Gregory said to the car. The dashboard lit up with the speedometer and the power meters beneath the windshield. Grandpa Perry's house. The car started driving by itself as both the seats in the car turned to face one another. 
The glass around them dimmed and turned into a futuristic bar scene as the windshield closed, sealing them in the setting even though Hector could faintly tell they were still moving. The black bar was filled with risers holding the different kinds of alcohol that filled oddly shaped liquor bottles. There was a GPS on what had been the dashboard. That was all that reminded them that they were still in the interior of a vehicle. So, Hector Milton. The Hector Milton. Gregory smiled at him. He had short black hair and brown eyes. Hector wasn't exactly sure, but he got the distinct feeling that Gregory was hitting on him. I don't know if I should shake your hand again or kill you. Why would you say that? Hector asked. A woman behind the bar that Gregory was leaning on walked over and handed him a drink that looked like scotch. It would be unwise to tell you just now. I can, however, let you see something that might be of significant interest to you. He pointed over Hector's shoulder. Hector looked over and saw that the wall behind him displayed the view of the road passing alongside the car. They were on a high bridge. The sun was dipping beneath the clouds on the distant horizon, giving the exposed gash of sky a blood-red hue. And then Hector saw it. Standing as tall as the Statue of Liberty was the massive statue of Rich Thompson. He looked like a Greek emperor, wearing a long robe and carrying a book at his breast. He held a hand to the sky that displayed a glorious permanent thumbs up as they sped by. The wall faded to the bar scene again. Gregory downed the drink in one swallow. We're almost there. Did you want a drink or anything? I'm fine, Hector said. The car came to a halt and the setting fell away to the dark interior of the vehicle. The doors opened and the two stepped out as the car closed and locked itself. How much did you pay for that car? Hector asked. Pay? Gregory asked. You don't pay for a car. Come on, this way. He motioned for Hector to follow. Hector climbed the steps behind Gregory and entered a house that looked like all the other houses. It was hard to tell if they were even in a different city than where Montberg had been. The house was a little different from the last one. There were strange historical artifacts everywhere of people and things that didn't make sense to Hector's knowledge of history. Gregory's grandfather was lying in a white chair with a blanket resting over his stomach and legs. He had short salt and pepper hair and brown pupils in the sockets of his eyes. He'd been asleep but quickly woke, taking in Gregory and Hector's appearance. Grandpa, this is Hector Milton. Hector, Perry. Hector walked into my unit about 20 minutes ago and brought all this. Gregory picked up the box that immediately became visible. He pushed the box next to Perry's chair. Perry got up and frowned at the contents. His eyes quickly went wide as he stared at the 38 revolver. Where did you get all this? Perry asked in a thick, tired voice. It was given to me by the U.S. Army, Hector answered. Hector Milton. Perry looked from the dog tag in his hand to Hector. So you're supposed to be the great coward. He smirked a goofy grin that was shared by Gregory. Gregory said you might be able to help me. Two hours ago, I was walking through the streets of Montberg, shooting at Germans. My partner, Rich Thompson, and I went into a basement and found ourselves in the forest. He got attacked and killed by some crazy people, and then I ran back into the basement and found myself here. I just want to go home, to my America. Not back to Normandy, just home to America. If what you say is true, Hector, said Perry, then you are never going to see your home again. At least not the home you've grown accustomed to. There is an America, but it's not going to look like anything you've ever seen before because that place no longer exists. For the sake of argument, 
let's propose that you are the Hector Milton that betrayed the great Rich Thompson, the prophet that single-handedly initiated a technological revolution nearly 12,000 years ago. Betrayed? I didn't betray him. At least I didn't mean to. I thought he was dead. And I thought if I stayed, I'd be dead too. Well, Rich wasn't dead. He was revered as a god. He helped the early tribes of man to develop weapons like the ones you brought with you. He ushered in cognitive thought to the world, brought great works of literature, printing, manufacturing, hospitals, military, religious, and social programs, refined, mining, smelting, discovered alcohol, and mapped a number of chemicals that became our periodic table of elements. He shaped the course of history as soon as he arrived. So, said Hector, the world was better? Oh, God, no, Perry laughed. I'm sure it was just as violent as the tales Rich chronicled about in his early years in a place that he could remember but could not find. Rich founded landmarks across the world, formed cities, shaped nations, and designated the different peoples across the planet to areas where they became natives. He had a name for everything like it existed well before he came into existence, formulated the English language that was adapted by everyone in the world within 600 years after he died. He put down the rules of grammar and rhetoric, created the first picture books that he called comics, created the very concept of history and recorded history, created boats that could sail on water and ships that could fly through the air, created the principles of mathematics and physics, and even invented cars. Granted, continued Perry, now everyone is smarter than he was, but none of it existed before him. He did so much in his short 80 years of life. Great statues were erected in his memory. But after he died, factions began to form and war broke out using the tools and ideas that he had introduced to the world. Territories and lines surfaced all over the planet. There was a period known as the Gear Wars where people used the machinery Rich had notated in his diaries to fight one another. We mass-produced weaponry, had our frontier wars with heavy artillery, slaughtered one another in the name of nations, and even unlocked nuclear weapons based on the concepts that Rich discussed with his followers. Our history is likely just as violent with just as many casualties as your history. It all just started earlier. What about now? said Hector. Gregory said there hasn't been wartime in over 2,000 years. Perry nodded. That's right. You could say that those ideas Rich came up with were a necessary evil in eventually discovering peace. Evidently, there isn't peace from your win. But after you blow yourselves up and recover for a few thousand years, you see, collectively, that it isn't worth it. We actually mastered space travel 5,000 years ago. We have planets and habitats in 16 different solar systems throughout the Milky Way, and three more in different galaxies nearby. Earth got severely damaged as a result of our own technological advances. We had to formulate advanced cleaning methods that eventually allowed us to terraform other worlds. Everything from your world is beyond science fiction. Hector shook his head. It isn't fair, really. Our advances took centuries to catch on. How did Rich Thompson bring so much in such a short period of time and actually get people to listen to him? He was a highly intelligent individual from the way he is portrayed in history. Some people have conspiracies that he never existed at all, that a faceless organization created him and tagged the advances in technology to a figure so they could claim that God exists. But it's widely recognized that Rich Thompson did exist, and that his life is the beginning of history, Perry said. What about this glass that's everywhere? This magic glass that the roads and walls and cars are made of? asked Hector. Oh, that, 
That is a byproduct of our having put together a program known as the Glass Network, a vast cloud web of information that connected everyone digitally. Once we created it, physical reality became connected as well. Within 200 years of its creation, our cars were driving on their own in order to eliminate the massive numbers of traffic accidents. A consecutive number of our world leaders migrated this technology to everyday life. Our generations became more intelligent, and as a result, we were able to get out of the solar system. With his elbows on the comfortable white chair, Perry folded his hands together and watched Hector carefully. But Hector, I'm afraid after having considered your situation, you are left with a choice that puts us in an awkward predicament. What do you mean? Hector asked. All of this, of course, is for the sake of argument but you have the choice of either staying in this timeline and living out the rest of your days in a world of peace, or I'm almost afraid to even suggest the alternative. Perry looked at Hector's perplexed facial expression and sighed. You know he isn't dead. Rich is still unconscious where you left him. Hector fixed his eyes upon Perry. He hadn't considered this as an option, but it was staring him in the face. He could go back to 1944 and continue risking his life for an uncertain future. This future, for all he knew. If he were to do that, he would have to go back and face his demons on the other side of the door in the basement. There is another option, Gregory said. He had listened to the vague summary of Rich Thompson and their world's history in silence. To us, Hector, you're a coward. The biggest coward. That's what made it so funny that you called yourself Hector Milton. We don't give our children the name of Hector or Milton, because it would be considered a disgrace just as we don't use Rich Thompson's name for the opposite reason. Okay, Hector wondered. He didn't see Gregory's point. Based on what you've told us, said Gregory, you can stay here, go back to your timeline, or go back and shape the world as Rich's partner. You could change history together. It would be a completely different history, Perry said. We would still no longer exist this world would be altogether different. The complex is that all futures lead to this one. It's just a matter of how soon. You're still in the middle of your violent era, Hector, but this is the universal utopia that is thought to be impossible for so long. We have a controlled population and nanotechnology that's integrated with our healthcare. You could do anything in the world, eat whatever food, enjoy any experience through our reality simulators. What he's saying is, other than for nostalgic purposes, why would you bother going back? Gregory said. I'm afraid I can't stay, Hector said without hesitation. If there's a way I can get back home, even if you don't give me my equipment back, then I have to try. But why? Perry asked. Because I'm not from this time. I have family and friends back home. I love my country, and I'd do anything to be a part of shaping that world into a better place from a position that I can understand. You've mastered this universe. To me, it is a weird smell, like plastic. Nothing feels real. I've only been here for an hour and I already feel like it's suffocating me. I don't want to be here, and I don't know how long that time portal is going to last. Can you please take me back to where you found me? Perry and Gregory exchanged a worried look. As a police officer, is this something in which I should intervene? Gregory asked his grandfather. Perry looked into the box at Hector's gear furrowing his bushy white eyebrows as he thought. It's a full set of equipment that's in perfect condition that mirrors the garb of Rich Thompson. And he was just wearing it when you found him? He looked to Gregory. Gregory nodded. We can't arrest a man for looking like someone from a long time ago, 
or keep him from going where he wants. But if this is how it looks, and I sure as hell can't explain it, then this man could jeopardize everything our kind has worked for over the last 10,000 years. Perry shot Hector an angry look. You want to end trillions of intelligent, peaceful lives so that you can go back to an era of war for one man's personal reasons? Two men's personal reasons. I'm taking Rich back with me, Hector said. If it's as dangerous as you say, said Gregory, then isn't there a good chance you two will die when you go back anyway? You're the front-line infantry in a medieval war involving firearms. Why would we give up our lives so that you can return to such a pointless timeline? Because it's right, and you can't keep me here, so what's the argument? Hector said. I'm afraid this is above us, Perry said. Seal the doors. All the doors around the room went opaque black. Perry grabbed his cane, a solid black beam, and stood up. Hector walked to the front door where he had been and tried to find a way out, but it was sealed. He walked back to the dimly lit living room. Open the door. You'll want to restrain him, sighed Perry. Gregory's expression had turned dark and stony. He walked forward with a zip tie in hand, meaning to tie Hector's hands. Sorry, bud. Can't let you go under these conditions. Before Gregory could get into his personal space, Hector ran forward and shoved him with both hands into the bar separating the kitchen from the living room. With all his strength, he slammed Gregory's head into the bar and knocked him unconscious. A flickering red spot appeared on the glass where his head had struck, marking the impact where Gregory's skull had met the surface. Hector turned to Perry, who had hobbled into the kitchen and sealed the room off from Hector. Open the door and let me out of here. I can't do that, Perry said. Hector went into his gear in the box and grabbed his M3 knife. He walked over to Gregory and withdrew the knife from its camo green sheath. You're forgetting that I don't know how many people I've killed over the last few days, and that you people mean nothing to me. I will kill your grandson if you don't open that door now. He met Perry's fearful eyes. I don't care what you believe. Open the door or I will kill him. An internal conflict passed through Perry as he watched Hector's face. Hector's wrist tightened around the grip of the blade. He prepared to push the knife into Gregory's throat. Open the door, Perry cried, and Hector quickly gathered his backpack from the box and fled through the now open front door of the home. The last thing he heard from Perry was, You'll never make it back to that doorway. Hector stepped out into the night-covered neighborhood and jogged to Gregory's car. He opened the door and slid inside. Hey, babe, he said, and the car activated. Gregory had finally roused and was running down the glass sidewalk from the house. Hector didn't want to trust the car, but had watched the GPS mapping functions as they drove here earlier. Go to work, he said, and the car door closed, giving him a small sense of claustrophobia at being locked in. Gregory hurried up to the door just as the car took off. Hector scanned the route of the GPS that led back to the police station. About three minutes later, the interior of the car went red, and across the dashboard, Hector read the words, Crime in progress, shutting down. The car slowed to the side of the road as the tent on the windows disappeared. Hector realized he was on the vast bridge that rounded the massive statue of Rich. He tried to get out of the car, but couldn't. The doors had locked him in. He kicked and shoved at the windows, but they were solid glass. He looked for something heavy to bust through the glass and realized that he still had the knife in his hand. Using the hilt, Hector hammered on the window until the glass began to spiderweb. It took a considerable amount of effort to crack it. 
He laid on his back in the passenger seat and gave the window a solid kick with both soft shoes he had been given at the police station earlier, shattering it to bits. The whole car shut down and the doors unlocked. Hector climbed out, hearing sirens in the distance. He swore and ran as fast as he could with his stuff in tow, keeping track of the GPS path he had seen earlier. Glancing over his shoulder, Hector saw a path of blood-red shoe prints marking where he had been. The glass world and network was keeping track of his every move. He was a criminal now, and everything from here on would further incriminate him until he escaped this world. If the tunnel was still there, he would flee through and escape this technological nightmare. But if it was gone, he would have to deal with the inhabitants and face his crimes, which was both assault on a police officer and vehicle theft, as well as fleeing the police. That's if they didn't crucify him as the great coward and heave him off a cliff with the rest of his tainted garb. By car, Perry's house wasn't that far from Gregory's home, a quick five minutes through the GPS navigation that was run by the glass network. On foot, the distance was proving to be a bit more of a challenge. He couldn't hide either, and the sirens were getting closer. Hector was able to see the top of the police building as he descended down the ramp and the house where he had arrived. Jogging as fast as he could, Hector made for the house in the distance. Red and blue lights gleamed through the glass beneath a black and white glass car that was working its way through the neighborhood toward Hector's position. Hector saw the vehicle just before he descended into the houses of the neighborhood. He ran down the street and up the sidewalk to the only house he was happy to see in this world, which of course was locked. Hector didn't waste any time. He hammered the knife blade on the door in five different places until the glass cracked. He gave the center spiderweb of cracks a hard kick and broke through the doorway to the raving figure of the man he had seen earlier. The man's wife and children were huddled in the kitchen, terrified as their father tried to grab Hector. Hector elbowed the man in the face and then shoved him into the refrigerator door in the kitchen. He heard the sirens come to a halt on the street outside and then heard the distinct motion of footsteps coming up the sidewalk. Hector didn't wait to see what was going to happen. He ran down the hall through the house toward the door leading to the basement. The basement door was locked. Hector slammed the knife's hilt into the door in the same fashion he had done with the front door, but two sets of hands grabbed for him before he could finish. He whirled around, swinging the knife. He caught the hand of one of the police officers that was trying to disarm him and smashed his knee into the other policeman's stomach. This gave him just enough time to throw a heavy kick into the door, which broke a large vertical gap in the glass that he was able to shove through. Wrenching his pack through the threshold behind him, Hector scrambled down the steps and ran down the long corridor toward lush greenery and vegetation. He realized that he had a problem now. The people from the glass world were going to follow him, and they would discover this tunnel. He would have to take action to keep this from happening. He turned around to see the two disgruntled police officers in pursuit. Hector grabbed one of his two hand grenades from his pack and shouldered his backpack. Seeing the explosive in hand, the police officers backed away. It was clear to them, while archaic, they still recognized the potential of the concussive explosion in a narrow hall. Get back! Hector yelled. Move! He pulled the pen and tossed the grenade down the corridor. Both officers bounced off one another to get out of the hall to the doorway into the house. That was the last Hector saw of that world. He turned and ran his own direction, entering into the forest of pre-civilization Normandy. His adrenaline still pumping, Hector ran into the small clearing where he and Rich had been ambushed to find Rich sitting around a campfire with two men who were examining his M1 Garand as Rich held a piece of cooked meat in hand. 
Jesus, there you are, Rich yelled. I thought you left me behind. Where'd you get that fruity outfit? Hector ran forward and tackled one of the men off the log to the ground, knocking the gun out of his grasp. There was a scuffle between the two as the other man shrieked. Hector, no! Rich cried and grabbed Hector's shoulder. Hector threw him off and grabbed the other tribesman's foot before he could run away. The tribesman landed a solid kick in Hector's face before both the men escaped into the trees. This is the past, Rich! Hector yelled. We can't let anybody get away. They'll change everything. What are you talking about? Rich spread his arms wide. You don't get it, do you? Hector yelled. Everything you do changes everything in the future. You can't just show these guys modern-day fire-starting techniques. We need to find those two and kill them. Rich shook his head. You're not making any sense. Where do you think I got these clothes? I went back to what I thought was 1944, but it was a whole new present with a whole different history. It was the future. That's nonsense, Rich scoffed. And those guys are long gone. You'll never catch them in these woods. In that case, we should get out of here before we change even more. Who started that fire? Hector pointed to the fire where the tribesmen had found Rich and started exchanging information with him. I did. Why? Rich asked. Shit. Hector clenched his fists and tried to think of what to do. These men probably run and hunt every day of their conscious lives. There would be no tracking them down in the dead of night in a pre-civilization forest. Maybe it won't change very much. Maybe. Maybe we should just go back and see what happens. I still don't understand what you're raving about, Rich said. It doesn't matter. Come on, let's get the hell out of here. Hector grabbed Rich's wrist and led him back to the doorway where they had entered. They stopped just in front of the passage that was dark within. Hector didn't know where the transitional event occurred or how much damage his grenade caused the corridor on this side, but he picked up a two-inch shard of glass that had blown all the way out through the threshold. Everything we do here matters. Everything someone can find. He looked into the glass, wondering if it was somehow connected to the glass network Gregory and Perry had told him about. Were they watching him now, the controllers of that network? Could they see everything regardless of what time the glass existed in? Hector didn't know, but he put the glass shard in his pack anyway. What do you think we should do? Rich asked. It was a pivotal question that had no correct answer. Hector had seen what Rich had brought to the world as the harbinger of knowledge, and it had drastic consequences. The conclusion that Hector arrived upon was that no man should possess knowledge of the future. In shaping and directing events, the rush of power swallowed him up and changed the world in strange ways. They needed to go back without having changed anything, and staying in the past was out of the question. Let's go home, Rich, Hector said, and the two walked down the corridor, Rich in front. They met with a set of steps in a familiar dilapidated basement that had not witnessed any grenade explosion. They climbed and entered the house above, pushing the door open where they were met by six Nazi SS officers. Startled, the Germans turned around, wearing their formal uniforms, and stared at the two intruders. There was a long pause before one of them spoke to the others in German. They exchanged confused looks before the Germans began drawing their weapons. Rich tucked back into Hector, drawing his sidearm, but there were too many. A bullet caught him in the skull as Hector slipped and fell down the steps. He felt an explosion of pain in his leg, and then in his back as bullets ricocheted through the corridor. He crawled as far as he could. Hector had just enough time to grab and pull the pin of his second and final grenade before throwing himself deeper down the hall. 
He felt the explosion before the house, the corridor, and the portal to the past came crashing down on him. I hope you enjoyed the first episode of the podcast. If you'd like to know more, check out nightbooks.com. That's night-books with a K dot com. This podcast is completely word of mouth, so if you enjoy this type of thing, be sure to subscribe and leave a good review if possible. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was written, recorded, and produced by Benjamin Allen. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media and Nightbooks production.